So tonight's message is entitled God's Glory and Suffering. I wanted to make my messages very practical for you. We did the overview of Sola Deo Gloria, my first message, and then this morning we talked about God's glory and His sovereignty. And tonight we're going to talk about God's glory and suffering. And then tomorrow, uh, I think tomorrow night, we'll do God's glory in repentance. And tomorrow morning's message, I will deal with some of the charismatic issues, word faith issues in one of my messages. And so I think we'll do God's glory and repentance tomorrow night. So let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer and we'll begin. Father, we, uh, tonight we will be looking at an issue that touches each and every person, whether lost or saved in a fallen world, and that is the issue of suffering. But for us as Christians, for those whom you have saved to yourself, that you have adopted into your own family, we know that our suffering here in this earth, in this life, has a purpose, ultimately to glorify you. And so, Father, we pray that as we go to your word now, that your Holy Spirit would again do his work of illumination, to illumine the meaning of your word to our hearts and to our minds, and to conform us more and more into the image of of Christ our King. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Amen. God's glory and suffering. I would invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to the book of James. James chapter 1. James chapter 1. We'll concentrate on verses 2 through 4, but we'll read 1 through 4. James chapter 1. God's glory in suffering. Beginning in verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. May God bless the reading of his word. The first thing that I would like to draw your attention to is uh, the first verse, actually, and this is just kind of parenthetically before we get into the, to the meat of the matter, but I think it's instructive for us and help us helpful and even encouraging. Notice how James begins his letter. He says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's four different James that are mentioned in the New Testament. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Okay, and we, of course, refer to James as the half-brother of Jesus because Jesus was conceived of a virgin. But after Jesus was born... Uh, much to the consternation of Roman Catholics, uh, Mary and Joseph had other children the old-fashioned way. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Jesus did not have siblings, he just had cousins. But no, he in fact had siblings. So uh, we refer to James as the half-brother of Jesus. And notice how James opens his letter. He says, I am James, a... Uh, now your English translations probably say bondservant, But the word there in the Greek is doulos, slave. 
James, the slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's instructive for us on two different points. One, notice that James did not appeal to his earthly relationship with Christ to buttress his own acumen, to uh, buttress his bona fides with anyone. He didn't, he didn't say, I am, I, am, I am James, the half-brother of Jesus. He and I were raised in the same home. We grew up under the same roof. I, I am the half-brother of Jesus. No, James knew that his most important relationship with Christ was not as his half-brother, but it was as his slave. It was as his slave. James understood that the most important relationship that we have is oftentimes not with our flesh and blood family, but it is with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Dear friends, if you have become a Christian and it has alienated you from friends and family, know that as a Christian, you have brothers and sisters in Christ. You have family members all over the world. And that is a great encouragement. That is a great encouragement to us as believers. I know that for everyone here who has trusted Christ as Savior and Lord, you're my brother. You're my sister. We're family. And we have family all over the world. James knew that his most important relationship was not a familial one, but it was as the slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is, it is familial in the sense that it is the family of God, but not necessarily blood family, blood kin. And notice the humility, the slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is true humility. He did not boast about being related to Jesus. He understood that his most important relationship was not as his half-brother, but as his slave. We are the slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ as Christians. So let us look, verses 2 through 4, the primary text. James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Notice that trials are not um, possible, they are inevitable. James didn't say, Consider it all joy if you encounter various trials, but rather, when you encounter various trials. Life is marked by trials, times of tears, times of pain. Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, Jesus says, Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Each and every day, living in a fallen world, each and every day has a little bit of trouble somewhere. John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. Job 5, verse 7, for man is born for trouble as the sparks fly upward. Just as naturally as when you have a, a fire, you know, wood fire, and you stoke the fire, and just as naturally as those sparks fly upward, so just as naturally living in a fallen world, a world that is, that is stained by sin, just as naturally as that, we will have trouble trouble. Trials are inevitable. Job 14 verse 1, man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of trouble. 
You're not going to see that verse on the front of a Hallmark card anytime soon. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says that the married will have trouble. If you're married, you're going to have trouble at some point. You know, um, you put two sinners under the same room, under the same roof, and eventually you're going to have a little bit of trouble somewhere. Paul was troubled. Look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Flip over there, if you will. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 28. 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 28. The Apostle Paul says, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. Now watch this list of trials here. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Do the math on that. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all of the churches. Other than that, everything was going great. The Apostle Paul had trials, many trials. And also Jesus himself was troubled. John chapter 11, verse 33. The death of Lazarus, Jesus wept. And then right before his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus sweated drops of blood as the shadow of the cross loomed large and he knew that he was going to endure not only a violent excruciating crucifixion but also all of the full undiluted fury of God's wrath that burns against the sin of his people Jesus was about to endure that Jesus was troubled this is an argument from the greater to the lesser if Jesus was troubled you and I certainly will be troubled. If he went through trials, you and I will certainly go through trials. A student is not above his master. Trials are inevitable. Pain is inevitable, living in a fallen world. And notice also, James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Trials are inevitable, and they are also varied. There's all different kinds of trials that we face. We have trials in our health, trials in our finances, trials in persecution, whether hard or soft, trials in our family, family members. If, uh, as I mentioned a second ago, if you become a Christian, a lot of times that will alienate you from the members of your own family, an alienation of affection. And many of you here have experienced that undoubtedly. When you became a Christian, it alienated you from members of your own family. And that's hard. Those are trials. And Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And your enemies will be members of your own household. Various kinds of trials. 
They are inevitable and they are varied. Now I want us to look at the meaning of trials. What do trials mean? Some people think that misfortune should only come to the ungodly, not to the godly. You've heard the question, why do bad things happen to good people? That's the wrong question. That's the wrong question. Because, dear friends, there is no such thing as a good person. A good person does not exist. You're not a good person. I'm not a good person. Because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. We have all broken God's laws. We are all bad people. So that's not the right question. The real question is, why does God cause good things to happen to bad people? That's the question. But many people erroneously believe that bad things should only happen to bad people. This was the question that Asaph had in Psalm chapter 73. If you've never read Psalm 73, go through Psalm 73, read it. It's a beautiful passage of scripture. But Asaph looked out and he saw the wicked prospering while the righteous suffered. And it vexed him. It troubled him greatly. And Asaph could not understand why do the righteous suffer and yet the wicked, the people who are opposed to God, who hate God, the wicked are prospering. Why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffering, suffer? And this was such a vexing question for him that he wrote about it in Psalm 73. He says, when he looked and he saw the righteous suffer and he saw the wicked prospering, he said, but my feet came close to stumbling, my steps almost slipped. He didn't understand it. Why do the righteous, why do the children of God suffer? But they do. Many people think that adversity means that God is somehow displeased with us. If you're a Christian and something bad happens to you, that's a, a sure sign of God's displeasure upon your life. But dear friends, nothing could be further from the truth. Oftentimes, the opposite of that is true. Remember Job. Job, this was an upright man. He was a righteous man. He walked with God. He was faithful. And yet God still allowed Satan to come and to strike from Job everything that he had. His possessions destroyed. His family dead. And his own health deteriorated. Job suffered horrifically. Job suffered like none of us can even imagine. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, this was a righteous man. Stephen was a faithful servant of God, and yet Stephen was stoned. And right before his stoning, God in his mercy, is like he allowed Stephen to have this brief glimpse into heaven, and he looked up and he saw Jesus standing, not sitting, but standing at the right hand of God. A very tender scene, like Jesus was standing ready to receive Stephen. And then he was stoned to death for his faith in Christ. All of the apostles were martyred for their faith. Stephen was stoned. Peter was crucified upside down. The apostle Paul was beheaded. They were all martyred for their faith. And I'm, I wonder oftentimes as I read through the New Testament and I read about what happened to the faithful servants of God in the New Testament, what is it? What is it in the lives of the apostles that make many Christians today think that they should be having their best life now. That, they, that God promises them a life of comfort, a 
that God promises them money, that God promises them healing? What is it in the lives of the apostles that make us think we deserve these things or entitled to these things? I wonder, like, what Bible are you reading? God's most faithful servants recorded in the inerrant scriptures all suffered, and they suffered horrifically. So why do many Christians today believe that God promises them a life of ease? I honestly believe, for example, Joel Osteen. You've heard of Joel Osteen? He is the pastor of the largest church in the United States of America, and I should say the quote-unquote pastor of the largest quote-unquote church because Joel Osteen is not a real pastor and he doesn't have a real church. He's a false teacher. But he's written this book, Your Best Life Now, that God's will is for you to have a comfortable life of ease and plenty of money and plenty of healing. It is not that Joel Osteen doesn't know what's in the scripture. He does. It is that Joel Osteen hates the God of the Bible. He hates the God of the Bible. He has created a God after his own image. A God that he wants. But it is not the God of the Bible. The fact of the matter is, people who have this errant health and wealth theology hate the God of the Bible. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness, per Romans 1, 18. Dear friends, the gospel is free. Salvation is free, but discipleship is not. If you have responded to a painless gospel, then you have responded to a false gospel. Salvation is free. Discipleship is not. It will cost you. Oftentimes, trials are because of our faith, not in spite of our faith. John 15, verse 20, Jesus says, If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Again, an argument from the greater to the lesser. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says, All of those who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It doesn't say some who live godly in Christ Jesus may be persecuted. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And there are no exception clauses to that unless you live in a Western country, unless you live in a democracy. Now, we don't live in Syria. We don't live in North Korea. We don't live in Iran. We don't live in a country like that, at least not yet. But if you have never experienced at least some soft persecution somewhere, if your faith in Christ has never cost you anything, then you're not living godly in Christ Jesus. You're not living godly in Christ Jesus. There's a missionary by the name, a lady named Amy Carmichael. She did her missionary work in India in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And she wrote a, she wrote a poem I'd like to read to you, a short poem. The title of the poem is, Hast Thou No Scar? Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound, 
Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent. Lend me against a tree to die and rent. By ravening beasts that encompass me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar. Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that leadeth me, but thine are whole. Can he have traveled far? Who hast no wound, who hast no scar? If you have no wound, if you have no scar, then you have not been following the master. You've not been following the master. Trials are inevitable, and oftentimes because of our faith, not in spite of them. I want us to now look at the purpose of trials. What purpose do trials serve? Number one, trials serve to engender in us humility. Humility. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 7 through 9, the Apostle Paul says, And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. What revelations? What's he talking about? You remember in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul was talking about this man. I know a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows, was caught up into the third heaven. So Paul had had this, this magnanimous privilege of being caught up into the third heaven, into the, to the abode of God. And Paul says, and because of the surpassing greatness of these revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. And concerning this thorn, I implored the Lord three times that it, might, that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. The Apostle Paul had been granted this magnanimous privilege of being caught up into the third heaven and to keep him from becoming prideful in this privilege that had been granted to him, God gave him a thorn in the flesh. And, and that word thorn in the Greek is the word scallops, and it's really better rendered as a, as a stake. This wasn't some minor irritation. This wasn't a, a hangnail. This, we don't know exactly what it was. I think probably my best guess it was symbolic of one or more false apostles back in the church of Corinth that were trying to turn the church against Paul. But whatever it was, it was severe. This was a severe trial. And Paul implored the Lord three times, Lord, take this thorn away. Take this stake away from me. And Jesus said, no. No, Paul, I'm not going to take it away because my grace is sufficient. For strength is made perfect in weakness. This thorn was given to Paul to keep him from exalting himself. In other words, to keep him humble. To keep Paul humble. Dear friends, none of us is without pride. If the Apostle Paul struggled with pride, this is the man who wrote roughly a, a third of the New Testament. If he struggled with pride, you and I will struggle with pride. None of us is without pride. None of us. And I'm going to say something that may sound a bit hard to believe. But this is true. I believe this to be true because I believe it to be true theologically. None of us does anything 
this side of heaven in a fallen sinful world, none of us does anything with 100% pure motives. None of us does anything with 100% pure motives. Your grandmother could be hanging off of a cliff holding on to a branch for her dear life and you could run up and save your grandmother and pull her over and even that, even that simply because we live in a fallen world and we have not been glorified, even that would not be done with 100% pure motives. There's always going to be a little kernel somewhere of some selfishness and pride. And I know, because I know theologically, that even as I'm up here in front of you preaching God's Word, even this I am not doing with 100% pure motives. Now, I do my best to take every thought captive and put to, deed, put to uh, death the deeds of the body. But none of us, none of us does anything with 100% pure motives. And so trials in our life serve to keep us humble. They serve to knock us down a peg. They engender in us humility. They engender in us humility. And also trials serve a second purpose, and that is our conformation, not confirmation, but conformation. They conform us into the image of Christ. They conform us into the image of Christ. Romans 8, 28, well-known verse. Paul writes, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn of many brethren. Now, what does Romans 8.28 not say? Romans 8.28 does not say that all things are good doesn't say that because you know what dear friends all things are not good it's not good when someone is left a quadriplegic in a car accident that's not a good thing it's not good when a child gets cancer these are not good things all things are not good but God in his sovereignty does work all of these things that in and of themselves are not good he works them together for the good Trials conform us to the image of His Son. They conform us into the image of Christ. They conform the student into the image of the Master to become more Christ-like. Psalm 119, verse 71, David writes, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The afflictions in and of themselves were not good, but it was good for David that he was afflicted so that he would learn the statutes of God. Dear friends, there is something about a trial that help us, helps us to learn more of God in an experiential way. It is good and it is right. I champion this in my ministry all the time to read, study, know the Word of God, know, know doctrine, know theology. Have it all up here in your head, absolutely. But there's something about going through a trial that helps us to learn of God in an experiential way. Because trials serve to bring us to the end of ourselves. And they serve to 
make us, force us, lean harder upon God. The great Baptist preacher and evangelist Charles Spurgeon said, I am certain that I never did grow in grace one half so much anywhere as I have upon the bed of pain. That's a good quote. James continues, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. This brings us to the third purpose of trials. Trials test our faith. They test our faith. James says, knowing that the testing of your faith, this word test, the verb form of this word means to investigate. It means to find out. And there's nothing like a good trial that will investigate us. It will find us out what we're really made of, spiritually speaking. It tests our faith, tests how genuine and how sincere our faith in Christ is. It Trials find us out. It's easy to claim to be a Christian when everything is going well, right? I mean, when, every, when we have... When our bodies are healthy, when we have plenty of money in the bank, when everybody likes us, you know, everything's just sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows all the time. Oh, it's easy to be a Christian then. But what about when the hard times come? What about when the diagnosis comes back? Cancer. What about when your family members turn against you? What about when you're threatened with losing your job? because of your faith in Christ? What about when your children go astray? Trials serve to test us. They serve to investigate us and to find us out and to see how genuine our faith really is. A true Christian will be driven to his knees through a severe trial. Trials bring us as Christians face-to-face with our own frailties. I said, I think in my first message last night, it's been said that spiritual growth is a growth downward. It is only when we have a lower view of ourselves that we will have a higher view of God. And a trial will bring us to our knees. A severe trial will bring us to our knees, and it will make us have a lower view of ourselves so that we can have a higher view of God. They test our faith. Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 31, If you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. If you persevere in these trials, then it will be shown that you are truly my disciples. 1 John two nineteen. They went out from us because they were not really of us. This is the rocky soil that Jesus speaks of in Matthew chapter 13. That initially, when when the gospel is heard, there's an initial response, an initial sign of life. But then what happens? The sun comes out, and it scorches that initial sign of life because there's no depth of soil. The trials of life scorch out false professions of faith. Joel Osteen, not to... Not to pick on Joel Osteen, but I guess to, uh, to pick on Joel Osteen. When real persecution does come to the United States of America, when real persecution does come to Christians, 
Joel Osteen's church will go from the largest church in the country to a ghost town overnight. You'll be able to hear a pin drop on Sunday morning in Lakewood Church because there's no depth there. There's no theology of suffering there. And severe trials will burn away those false professions of faith. Now let's turn a bit of a corner. I want us to look at our response to trials. How should we as Christians respond to trials? Well, James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter these various trials. Consider it joy. Now, what James does not say is enjoy your trials. That's not what he says. Because trials are not enjoyable. That's why they're called trials. Trials are not supposed to be enjoyable. Have you ever heard someone say that, oh, oh, you're just supposed to consider it all joy when you go through a trial. You know, you're supposed to enjoy that trial. No, you're not supposed to enjoy it. Trials are not enjoyable. By definition, they're not enjoyable. If they were, then they wouldn't be trials. So please don't fall into this hyper-spiritual trap. Dear brother, dear sister in Christ, if you're going through a trial right now, don't fall into this hyper-spiritual trap that says when you're going through your time of pain, your season of suffering, that you're supposed to enjoy it. You're not supposed to enjoy it. It's okay not to enjoy it. You know, my handicap, my cerebral palsy, is a, is a trial. Is it a severe trial? Not really, because I was born with it. I've never known anything different, so it's normal to me. But, you know... I'm not going to sit up here and be all super spiritual and say that there aren't times that my handicap kind of gets to me, you know, and I've just, there's some days I just kind of wish I wasn't crippled. So I, do I enjoy my cerebral palsy? No, I don't enjoy it, but I can count it as joy. I can count it as joy because I know that God is using this and the other trials in my life, that God is using this to humble me, to conform me more into the image of Christ, and to make me lean harder upon Him so that I will come to know God in an experiential way that otherwise I might not have known Him. I can count it as joy. And I can also count these things as joy because I know that God not only will not, but God cannot act towards me. And dear friend, dear brother, dear sister in Christ, God cannot, cannot act towards you in any way that is outside of his character and his nature. He can't do it. God will never act towards us outside of his character and his nature. And his character and his nature is that of love and faithfulness and patience and yes, holiness. And I can take great comfort in that. I can count my trials as joy, knowing these things are true about God. And if I did not have a healthy theology of the sovereignty of God, I would not be able to count my trials, whatever they are. I would not be able to count them as joy. You must have a healthy understanding of the sovereignty of God so that you can count your trials as joy. Look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. You're welcome to 
flip over there. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but were not destroyed, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. What a transparent passage of Scripture. This is Paul. This is the author of the book of Romans. This is the author of, obviously, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all of these books. And Paul says of himself that he was afflicted in every way, but he wasn't crushed, perplexed. He didn't understand all of the things that were happening to him. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. The trials that Paul was going through were so severe that it made him, it made him waver. So severe, in fact, that Paul even refers to himself as depressed. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 Look with me there, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. Notice what Paul says here. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. All comfort. Who comforts us in some of our affliction. No, who comforts us in all of our affliction. So that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. It's a lot of comfort there, isn't it? And Paul says that God is the God of all comfort. Dear friends, you will not find any help for your trials, your suffering, your persecution, you're not going to find any comfort for these things at the bottom of a bottle. You're not going to find any comfort for these things in a pill. But where will you find comfort? In God. The God of all comfort. Not some comfort. All comfort. Who comforts us in all of our afflictions. He is our source of comfort. He is our source of peace. He is our source, source of joy. He is the one who gives us a sound mind. Not a bottle and not a pill. But sometimes these trials that you and I go through are so severe it can make our faith waver. Remember Asaph in Psalm chapter 73. He saw the righteous suffer and he saw the wicked prospering. And it troubled him so, so much he said, My steps came close to stumbling. My feet almost slipped. It's like Asaph got, he was so troubled that he got right up to the brink, right up to the edge of apostasy, and he peered off into the abyss. My feet came close to stumbling. My steps almost slipped. John the Baptist, this is a man who went through an incredible trial. Remember, this is, 
John the Baptist, he baptized Christ. And yet he found himself in prison, just about to have his head lopped off. And John the Baptist looking around and things were not turning out the way that he thought they would. The ministry of Jesus was not turning out the way that he thought it would. And he found himself in prison. And so he sent a question to Christ through his own disciples. And the question was this. Are you the Messiah? Or should we be looking for someone else? And how did Jesus respond? Did Jesus respond with sarcasm? Like, are you serious? Did, did John the Baptist seriously ask you to ask me that question? Jesus said, no man who is born of woman is greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist went through a trial and his, it was so severe that his faith wavered. The Apostle Paul's faith wavered. Asaph's faith wavered. And dear friends, sometimes our trials, sometimes the suffering that we go through will be so severe that we may get right up to the edge. We might get right up to the cliff and we peer off into the abyss of apostasy. But then Asaph said something else in Psalm 73. He said, my feet came close to stumbling, my steps almost slipped until, Asaph said, until I came into the sanctuary of God. Until I came into the sanctuary of God. Until Asaph got God's perspective on his suffering. And friends, we may get right up to the edge. Right up to the edge of the cliff. And we stare off into the abyss of apostasy. The suffering may be so severe. And sometimes God will let that happen to us. But before our steps slip before our feet stumble, the strong arm of God will come out and it will grab us and it will pull us back from that cliff. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. Praise God. James says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. How do we know these things? We know them by studying God's Word. By studying God's Word. Sanctification, growth in Christ, is not a passive endeavor. We don't just sit around and wait for God to sanctify us. He does, but we also have a responsibility to study, to show ourselves approved unto God. To read and study and obey God's Word. If you've never done a study on the attributes of God, can I encourage you... Do yourself a favor and do a study on the attributes of God. There's a couple of good books out there. One by uh, Stephen Charnock, C-H-A-R-N-O-C-K, on the attributes of God. Another one by A.W. Pink. Uh, Stephen Charnock's book is thick. A.W. Pink's book is smaller and more digestible. Um, and if you've never done an in-depth study on the attributes of God, do yourself a favor and do that. The more we know God, the more we can trust God. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. 1 Peter chapter 5, 6-7. through 7. 
1 Peter 5, 6 through 7. Peter writes, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him, because he cares for you. When we go through these trials, Peter writes that we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he will exalt us, casting all of our anxiety, all of our fears, cast them upon God, for he cares for you. For he cares for you. A little illustration. Uh, Ever since I was a boy, I've always been fascinated by astronomy. Space has always just fascinated me. And um, some of you have heard some of these illustrations, these numbers, but the mass of the earth, I looked this up, the mass of the earth is 6.6 sextillion tons. 6.6 sextillion tons. Do you know how big that is? I don't either. I don't even know how many zeros that is. 6.6 sextillion tons. And as massive as the earth is, you could fit 1.3 million earths inside of our sun. 1.3 million earths inside of the sun. And our sun is just kind of an average size star. There's some smaller, but there's some a lot bigger. There's a star out there, they tell us, that named... Um, there's a couple of them that are, that are massive, uh, Canis Majoris, and then another one named E.Y. Scuddy. And as best we can tell, E.Y. Scuddy is the largest star that we know of. Okay, 1.3 million Earths in the sun. Guess how many suns will fit inside this one other star named E.Y. Scuddy? 9.3 billion. I can't comprehend that. None of us can. We can't wrap our minds around that. And that's just one other star. There are billions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy, our own galaxy. How many galaxies are there? We don't even know. One, two trillion are some of the estimates. But we don't know. The human mind, we cannot comprehend all of that. So why do I rattle off all these numbers to you? For this reason. When James says here in first, I mean, excuse me, when Peter says here in first Peter five, six through seven, cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. That phrase, he cares for you. The most literal rendering of that in the Greek is this. It matters to him about you. It matters to him about you. Think about that. Dear friends, our great God, who spoke all of the universe into existence, who created this universe that is so incomprehensibly huge, massive, our circuit breakers trip when we think about it. This great God, who spoke all of this into existence, Whatever it is right now that you are going through, my brother, my sister in Christ, it matters to him about you. It matters to God about us. 
That is an awesome thought. This great God who not only spoke it into existence, but who upholds all things by the word of his power. You could go out to some far-flung galaxy out there somewhere, a galaxy that we haven't even discovered yet, and find some distant star on some one of the outer edges of its spiral arm and find one star and, and drill down into the middle of that star somewhere and find one little atom of hydrogen. And do you know why that little atom of hydrogen is right exactly there where it is? Because right now it is being held in its appropriate and appointed place by the constant exertion of God's power. And it matters to him about you. It matters to him about me. Selah. That is an awesome thought. No matter what it is that you're going through, it matters to God about you. What a comfort. James says, and let endurance have its perfect result. Endurance. Trials produce in us endurance. Testing trials in our lives produces, produce endurance in our lives as Christians. The word endurance here in the Greek is the word hupomene. Hupomene. And it literally means to remain under. To remain under. Dear friends, God oftentimes does not remove our trials like he did not remove the scallops, the stake in the flesh of the Apostle Paul. He doesn't remove them, but what he does is he does give us his sufficient grace to hapomene through the trial, to remain underneath the trial. Like Joseph in prison, God gave him the grace to endure his trials. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. It's the same word, endure, hupomene. God did not take away the cross. He did not take away his cup of wrath. But somehow in the mystery of what was happening to Jesus on the cross, as the full undiluted fury of God's wrath was poured out on the Son, that somehow Jesus, who pomenade, he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. I remember growing up as a Southern Baptist, and uh, of course we'd have Sunday morning, Sunday night services, but we'd also have Wednesday night services midweek. And we called that our prayer meeting, Wednesday night prayer meeting. And so we would get together on Wednesday night as a church, and we would have a meal and then after the meal, we would have a time of prayer requests. Um, the pastor would get up and he'd say, so, you know, who, who in here has, tonight has a prayer request? And, of course, always hands, hands would go up. And any time you hear this in a church, you know, prayer meeting or something, who has a prayer request? What are 99% of all the prayer requests for? Somebody's sick, right? Somebody's in the hospital. Somebody's having surgery. It seems like that's 99% of the prayer requests that are ever offered. And dear friends, I am not opposed to praying to God that he would heal someone. I'm not opposed to that at all. 
I have some people in my life right now that I'm praying for that God would be merciful to, that he would heal them. But maybe instead of spending all of our time praying, Lord, take this trial away from me, take this suffering away from me, maybe we should be spending a little bit more time praying for things like this. Lord, use this suffering in my life to conform me into the image of God, to conform me into the image of my master. Use this suffering in my life to keep me humble. Use this suffering in my life to make me lean harder upon you. Use this suffering in my life so I can may learn of you in an experiential way. Like David said in Psalm 119, 71, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Lord, use this suffering in my life so that I can reflect well upon you. And through the suffering, through the persecution, through the sickness, we remain faithful to Christ and we glorify him. Maybe we should spend more time praying for things like that. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials serve to make us perfect, not morally perfect, but as in thoroughly equipped to go through the trials and we are not lacking in anything. As Christians, we lack no resources. As Christians, we have the Word of God. We are indwelt by the third person of the triune Godhead. We have the fellowship of the saints, the body of believers. We are fully equipped. And this results in our increased sanctification and ultimately glorification of Christ. This is not sinless perfection, but it is progressive sanctification. We have everything that we need. We are partakers of the divine nature. We have the Holy Spirit who illumines the meaning of his word to our hearts and to our minds. We have everything that we need. 1 Peter chapter 1, 6-7, through 7, the Apostle Peter says this, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There it is. So that our trials, when we are tested by fire, when we are tested by suffering, when we are tested by persecution, when we are tested by sickness and disease, all of these things may be found to result in the praise, in the glory, in the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Soli Deo Gloria. Our suffering ultimately is about His glory. Our suffering is about His glory. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Don't miss that. Not only is our belief, our faith in Christ granted to us, so is suffering. It's granted to us. 
It's a privilege to suffer for Christ. It's a privilege to suffer for Christ because oftentimes it is when we are suffering that Christ is most honored and most glorified. By God's grace in my travels, I've met so many people that uh, suffer far, far worse than I do, and yet they are beautiful examples of faithfulness to Christ. They love Christ. Beautiful examples. I know of um, there's this one couple that Kathy and I met in Massachusetts, John and Debbie Lynn Kespert. John and Debbie Lynn Kespert. They are a married couple. They're in their 60s. John's probably right about 70 years old now. Deb's in her mid-60s, I believe. They're both in wheelchairs. John is in a wheelchair because he had polio as a child. And he has to have a breathing treatment every few minutes. He has a, like a, I don't know if it's a nebulizer, but he has this thing on the back of his wheelchair that he has to grab every, every two or three minutes and, and suck on it to keep his airways clear so he can breathe. His wife, Debbie Lynn, also in a wheelchair, but uh, for cerebral palsy, the same condition I've got, but far, far worse, far worse. Debbie Lynn has no control of her hands at all. Uh, in fact, her hands are withered and drawn up. She can't even hold a pencil. She can't give herself a drink of water. Her speech is severely affected. It's very difficult to understand her when she talks. Uh, physically, she's as helpless as a, as a newborn baby. She literally can do nothing for herself physically. But her mind is sharp. And both Debbie Lynn and John love Christ. They love him. They serve him faithfully. They speak well of him. And they're just a joy to be around. I mean, you, when you're with them, you just, you can sense their joy. The joy that comes from the love that they have for Christ. And undoubtedly they suffer. I know they suffer. And their suffering is not enjoyable, but their suffering has served to conform them more and more into the image of Christ. And they speak well of him. And dear friends, sometimes Christ is most honored, most glorified in that. When people see John and Debbie Lynn Kespert and how they suffer, like probably nobody in this room, including me, can even begin to imagine, and yet they're joyful... And yet they love God. That speaks well of God. That speaks well of Christ. It glorifies him. And ultimately our suffering is for that purpose. Yes, to help us. Yes, to conform us more into the image of Christ. But ultimately to glorify him. God is glorified in us when we suffer. When a lost world sees the trials and the sufferings that we go through. And yet we still speak well of Christ. And we honor him and we serve him. God is glorified in that. Remember what Jesus said to Peter and John. This is after his resurrection. Jesus said to Peter, Peter, when you were young, you used to gird yourself and go wherever you wish to go. But Peter, when you were old... When you are old, Peter, you will stretch forth your hands 
and someone else is going to gird you and they're going to take you where you do not wish to go. In this Jesus said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. Our suffering is ultimately about God's glory. Soli Deo Gloria. Our suffering is about Him. He does not take, more often times than not, He does not take our suffering away. More times than not, He's not going to remove your thorn, your stake. But know this, Christian, His grace will be sufficient. And his strength will be made perfect in our weakness. And ultimately, Christ will be glorified through it. Do you know this great God? Do you know this God who spoke the universe into existence? Do you know this Savior who laid down his life for you on the cross? Has there been a time in your life when you have been convicted by the Holy Spirit of God that you are a sinner and your sins have earned you the righteous wrath of God? Has there been a time in your life when you have confessed your sin before God and repented of your sin? Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Do you know where you will go one day when you die? If you're not certain of where you are in your relationship with Christ, I would implore you get real honest before God. Cry out to Him. Confess your sins before Him. Trust what Jesus did for you on the cross. Not in your works. Your works will profit you nothing. Lay your works down and trust Jesus. His work on the cross. And if you come to Him, Jesus says, the one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. If you want to talk to me or any of the other pastors or elders here about your relationship with Christ, if you're not certain, please come up and talk to us. We would love nothing more than to talk to you about where you stand in your relationship with God. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can look through the pages of your word and we can find, indeed, every, uh, every example of every faithful servant of yours suffered. We thank you for the testimony that you have left us in their lives. We can see that how you use them, we can see how they were faithful servants, and yet we can see their suffering. Yet we can see that they, many of them gave their lives for you. Their faithfulness to Christ cost them their lives. What an encouragement that is to us. Father, as we go through our trials, may, be, may we be aware that these trials, the sufferings in this short life are your kind provision for us. Indeed, a privilege, something that has been granted to us to conform us more and more into the image of your Son and ultimately to glorify you. These things we would ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen.